0: Father, we do come before you, and Lord, we just ask that you would just do a mighty and a powerful work. And Lord, we know that it's in our weakness that you are made strong. And Lord, I just confess, Lord, that Father God, I'm desperate for you right now, that you would just move mightily, Lord, that you would speak, that your people would be blessed. And I pray for each person here, myself included, Lord, that our hearts would just be soft to hear from you. And Lord, as we just look at the just the depth of your word, and Lord, as we look at what the law and how it points to our need for a Savior, Father, may just open our eyes and open our hearts, Father God, to how desperate we are for you. So Lord, we thank you, we praise you, Lord. Just meet us here now, we pray, in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. The title of the message tonight is Rules for Restitution. We know that we've been talking about the law of Moses, and we saw a couple weeks ago, we saw when when Almighty God came down on Mount Sinai and gave the Ten Commandments to Moses. And remember the prerequisite to that, the thing that happened before that, was how he moved mightily upon, upon the people and brought fear into them, so that when the word was delivered, they were prepared for it. Remember how we talked about the fact that the law is a taskmaster that drives us to the cross. The law exists to make us see our need for a savior. The law is not the thing that we try to attain so somehow God will approve of us. Too many people think that the law is the answer. The law is not the answer. The law is what points us to the answer. Amen? And so we saw last week how we went from the law of God, which is the Ten Commandments, which applies to us today, to the law of Moses. And we saw specifically in the law of Moses last week in chapter 21, he began by giving them ordinances or statutes that would regulate the people of Israel. Again, you've got three million people. There needs to be some laws and some things to govern them. Remember how God had used Jethro to tell Moses, you need to raise up other men. You can't judge these people all by yourself. And now he gives them the law of Moses that applies specifically to the Jews or to Israel. Now, some of these laws obviously are great and they apply to us today, but we do not—we no longer live under the law of Moses. Now it's said of Jesus that he did not come to do away with the law but to fulfill it, but we no longer have the sacrificial system. We're not sacrificing lambs. We're not going into the Holy of Holies. When Jesus died on the cross, the veil was torn, and he's the one that is our, our intercessor in heaven. But as we look at these laws, there's great things that we can learn from them, and several of them that still should have an impact on us today. But last week, as we looked at chapter 21, the title of the message was Bound by Love. And I just want to take a moment to refresh your memory about that message. Bound by Love. And the whole thrust of the message last week was the fact that God had instituted a way that servants could be made free. And he said, from now on, those who are servants, those who are bound to a master, those who are bond servants, if they serve for six years, at the end of six years, a picture of the Sabbath, on that seventh year, they will be set free. But if there are those among the the servants who at the seventh year desire to stay with their master, they can do that of their own free will. But it would change from being servants out of law to servants out of love. Being bond or bound to their master because they love their master, not because they have to. Now many times they were serviced because they were either sold into slavery, or they were people who had, as we're going to see tonight, people who had broken the law, or people who could not make restitution. And so what happened was they became a slave. And in those days it would be it might be that it would take from them the rest of their lifetime to pay it back. But the Lord gave this law and said, From now on you serve six years, but in the seventh year, if you desire to stay, then you become what is called a bond servant. And we know what would happen, we saw this last week, that if they desired to be a bondservant, they said, you know, I love my master, I don't have to stay, but I want to stay. I want to be bound to my master for the rest of my life. It's of my own free will that I want to stay here. They would take them and they would put them against the doorpost. And they would take an awl and run it through their ear, and pierce their ear. This is in chapter 21, verse 1 through 6 last week. And then they would put an earring in their ear. Now it's interesting that the last time we saw a doorpost in the the context of Exodus, it was at Passover. And we remember that they put the blood of the firstborn lamb on the doorpost. Again, a picture of the cross. And now we see them back at the doorpost, running this all through the ear of a servant, who's saying, I want to be bound to my master of my own free will. And it was only when he placed his ear against the door, it's only when that all was run through, only through the piercing and the shedding of blood upon the wood could there come this relationship where you were bound to the master. Again, another picture, clear picture of the cross in the Old Testament. And I love the fact that that earring remained in his ear the rest of his life, and it was a, it was a significant symbol to the master that this one has chosen to be bound to me. And it was a symbol to his family, because if he had left, he would have had to leave his wife and kids behind. It was a symbol to his family that he's chosen to stay, he's chosen to be bound. Now, we don't have an earring anymore that, that signifies that we belong to the master. What we have now is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is that all that was driven through us. It's that thing that shows us that we now belong to the Master. Also, last week we saw not only being bound by love, but we saw that that we're all slaves. And everybody on this planet is a slave to something. You're either a slave by natural birth to sin, or you're a slave by rebirth to righteousness. You're slaves by birth. They were born into slavery. Every one of us was born into sin. The moment you took your first breath, you were already a sinner. But the good news is, the Bible says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So we were born into sin, so how how do we become righteous? Not because of our good deeds, but through rebirth, through being born again through the shed blood of Jesus Christ upon the cross. We also saw the law concerning violence, where you saw that verse that most of you know, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And again, we talked about how that is not commanding that we be vengeful, it's limiting the amount of of vengeance it 's limiting the, the thing that we do in response to vengeance against us, and then lastly, we saw that uh, the basic rules for taking care of your animals and what I loved about this part though, was that whenever an animal was, had gored a slave, that they had to pay the slave owner to compensate for the slave that had been gored by the ox, and the payment that they had to make was thirty pieces of silver. And it's interesting that a servant or a slave that had been pierced the price was 30 pieces of silver. And what was paid to Judas when he betrayed our savior, it was 30 pieces of silver, and he was the servant who was pierced for us. Amen. You've you know what? You got to love the Old Testament. You've got to love how the Bible just so totally fits together. Even though, again, as I've said many times, it's 66 books written by 40 authors on three continents in three languages over 1,500 years with one central theme and no contradictions. How is that possible? Because God wrote it. Amen? So we're going to move on this, this evening and look at Exodus chapter 22. And we're going to look at some more of the statutes. Again, these are our, our rights or rules for, rest, for restitution. For them to be made right with the person that they had sinned against, there would have to be restitution. And we're going to talk about what that points to as we move on in the text. So we'll see tonight that sin has consequences. How many of you know that sin has consequences? Raise your hand, right? Sin has consequences. When we choose to sin, consequences will come. And we'll see that in the text tonight. This chapter also reveals the holiness and graciousness of our God, that while sin has very heavy conscious, uh, consequences, that God makes a way for there to be restitution. God makes a way that even though we're sinners, there's a way to have restitution that ultimately can re- produce restoration. So between the one who has sinned and the one he has sinned, sinned against. So what is restitution? It's paying the required price. What is restoration? It's a relationship being brought back together. Many of you know this, the word religion in the original language is religio, which means to re-link. I don't like what religion has come to mean. It's come to mean, you know, the wheelbarrow of rules and a black robe with heaven at the end, right? It's, you know, hit your face with a board every three steps. It's this, you know, it's a bunch of rituals, it's a bunch of, it's a burden, it's heavy, you know, and it's become this religion. And you know what? That's not what God intended it to be. The word religion means to relink sinful man back to holy God. And the only way that can happen is through a holy and a perfect sacrifice. So restitution has to be paid that there can be restoration. And we're going to see tonight exactly how that happens. So here are the statutes we're going to look at, Lord willing and time permitting. First of all, the, the statutes concerning property and thieves and people that come in and steal, statutes concerning adultery and fornication, both physically and spiritually, statutes concerning the treatment of others, and statutes concerning our reverence for God. So the first 15 verses, we're going to look at statutes concerning property. How are we to deal with people when it comes to property? How do we deal with the statutes, again, concerning theft? Now this will point to one of the Ten Commandments. Remember last week, that two of the commandments were discussed in the laws that we looked at. We looked at, you know, the Sabbath, and we looked at uh, honoring your mother and father. Now this week, the statutes we're going to look at, first one's going to deal with the eighth commandment, which is, thou shalt not steal. Okay, so let's take a look, beginning in verse one, the consequences and the statutes concerning theft. It says, if a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. So the consequences of stealing were heavy. Full restitution of what he had stolen had to be made. And the amount of restitution was based upon the nature of the theft. Now in those days, your wealth was determined more than anything else on the amount of cattle you possessed. The more cattle you had, the richer you were. You'll see it quite often when they describe Solomon's wealth. They describe wealth of different kings. They talk about how much cattle they had. And so when you stole someone's cattle, you were stealing their wealth. Now, I I don't think it's a perfect analogy, but it'd be like if somebody came and stole your car. Now, in this case, they would say if somebody steals your car, they've got to come back and give you five cars to pay for the car that they've stolen. You know what? That's heavy duty restitution. And in this case, it's what he says. If you steal an ox and you go and sell it, you're going to have to bring back five oxen to pay for that ox you've stolen. If you steal a sheep, you're going to have to come back and pay four sheep. That's heavy duty restitution. Now, here's the thing about that. Most people would not be able to pay it. If they're thieves, they probably don't have any money. That's one of the reasons they're stealing. And if they stole and they could not make restitution, guess what happened? They became slaves. They became enslaved. So when you went out and you stole in those days, it was heavy-duty consequences. And you know what? There needed to be a way that you could have restitution. So the huge penalty, no doubt, deterred death. And again, not completely. Look what it says in verse 2. If the thief is found breaking in and he is struck so that he dies, there shall be no guilt for his bloodshed. So if somebody's breaking into your house in the middle of the night and you see him breaking in and you don't know why he's coming. I mean, he could be coming to kill you. You don't know. And if he dies, then there's no guilt for his bloodshed. Now it's amazing how our laws have changed, I'm sure you've all heard this, a few years ago some guy was trying to break into a house up in Washington and he was crawling up on top of the house trying to find a way to break in and he fell through the skylight and he broke his back and so he came and they arrested him and took him away. Well he sued the skylight company because he said that the skylight was defective because it should have been able to hold up his weight when he was walking across the roof to try to break into the house and he actually won the lawsuit for 1.5 million dollars. Now, have we messed things up just a little bit? You think we might want to go back to this chapter? Because it says here, if you break in and, you know, if you fell and break his neck, then, and if somebody comes in and he ends up getting, you know, shot or whatever would happen, they couldn't shoot him back then. But if something happened that there was no restitution made to him, there was no guilt on the part of the one who was protecting his home. We're going to see, though, that God's highest is never to bring vengeance. So the ultimate consequence for sin is death. And in this case, as you broke in, if you were a thief, you would either have to pay back five for one or four for one. Five oxen, by the way, and and only four sheep, because oxen were used for labor. So not only did you lose the animals, but you lost the labor that the animals would have produced while they were gone, and that's why it's five to one instead of four to one. But now you're breaking into a home, and there's going to be consequences for your sin. Verse 3. If the sun has risen on him, there shall be guilt for his bloodshed. He should make full restitution. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. So it says now, if if he's breaking in and it's daylight, and you can see the thief that he's coming in, you can assess the situation, you know that he's not trying to kill you, it says if you harm him, then there will be, you're going to face the consequences for his bloodshed. You're going to have to deal with the court. You're going to have to deal with the fact that you harmed him. Now this is interesting to me, so if he comes in at nighttime and you harm him, you don't have to worry about facing the judge. But if he comes in during the daylight and you get an excessive situation and you harm him, you're going to have to go before the judge. You know, it, says, it tells me this real clearly, if you can see the thief, you're going to be responsible. And I, I tell you the spiritual analogy that God put on my heart as I read this, is that with increased light comes increased responsibility. You know, the more and more that we have truth illuminated to us the greater level of responsibility that we have. Amen? You know, the more you know God's Word, the more responsible you become. The more that you walk with God, the more He illuminates it to you, the more responsible you are to respond to it. And so we see here that in the light of day, that the level of responsibility of the man whose house is being broken into changes. And in the light of the Word of God, and in the light of, of the Holy Spirit illuminating his, our, our path of our lives, the greater responsibility comes to us. And so we see here that to minister to this sinner, not to destroy him, is God's highest. God's highest would be, again, that there still have to be restitution. It says if he's caught, he has to pay back. If he can't pay back, he becomes a slave to the one whose house he broke into. And again, an opportunity to minister to that man who had broken in to his house. They'll be sold for his his theft. If his family or he could not come up with the money, then he was going to become a slave. Now it's interesting to me, That we, sinful man, cannot pay the price for our sin, and that's why mankind has become slaves to sin. Amen? Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 6. The Bible tells us very clearly that if we do not know Christ, we are slaves to sin. You might say, well, Pastor Dave, I'm a Christian, but I still sin. Yes, you do. But you're no longer a slave to sin. Here's the difference. The Bible tells us, Jesus said, be holy, for I am holy. God has called us to pursue righteousness, and we are slaves to righteousness, and here's the difference, before you knew Christ, when you sinned, you ran to it, you enjoyed it, but when you give your life to Jesus Christ, sin brings conviction, amen? You hate sin, it grieves you, it grips your heart. Without conviction, there can be no conversion, and with conversion, there is always conviction. We will be people who are convicted about our sin. And conviction is not a bad thing. Being a Christian doesn't mean you have to walk around going, Oh, you know, I'm feeling like you're just getting pounded on because you're sinning all the time. We've been freed from sin. We've triumphed over sin and death. We're ha heaven bound. Amen? We're going to heaven. And that's a blessing to know that. And so we see here that they became, he became enslaved. Why? Because he could not pay the debt. Why is the world enslaved to sin? Because it cannot pay the price of sin. Can't do it. Going to church will not pay the price for you. Crawling on your knees to Mecca will not pay the price for you. You know, going and giving to charity, there's nothing you can do to pay the price for sin. Just like these thieves, there was nothing they could do to pay the price for sin. But it's intriguing to me, it's just as we learned in the last chapter, that this very man who broke into the house, who may have even had a desire to, to steal, is now going to be enslaved, but after six years, he can now become a bond servant. A slave by choice. And the same is true of every one of us. We were once slaves to sin. Slaves by law. But now, through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, through the all being driven through the ear, the pierce, the shedding of the blood, we can now become bond servants. Slaves to Him by choice. Being a slave is not a bad thing if you have a good master. Amen? And you know what? I love my master. I love my master. There's no other place I'd rather be. There's no one else I'd rather serve. There's nothing else I'd rather do. And so we see here with this thief, if he cannot repay, he becomes a slave. If caught again with the cattle, he would be enslaved. Verse 4, if the theft was certainly found alive in his hand, whether it is an ox or donkey or sheep, he shall restore double. So the ones that had sold them had to pay back five times. Those who, they found them, they still had the cattle, they had to pay back the cattle, give the cattle back they had sold, but they still had to yet double what they had taken. Why? Because there had to be first restoration right? Restitution, paying back, but then it also had to be a penalty for his sin. Sin always comes with a penalty. Always. But that's why our sin must be paid for by someone. Now, it's also interesting that in Numbers chapter 5, don't look there, but if somebody had, was convicted about their sin and they brought the animal back, they did not have to pay double. It says they paid 120% a, a full and a fifth so 120%. So if someone had stole $100 and they caught him red-handed, they'd have to give $200. But if the person was convicted and went back of their own free will and said, you know what, I'm convicted, I stole this from you, let me pay you back, they only had to pay him 120 Now it's interesting to me that I see a lot of this happen. And again, it isn't always the case, but many of you remember there was a young man here who had gotten saved, had been a Christian in a very short amount of time, and had the law hanging over his head. And you know what, because of conviction, as a new Christian, he was so convicted, he said, I'm going to go back and I'm going to tell the court what I've done and I'm going to throw myself at the mercy and I know I might spend 10 years in prison, but I'm going to go do it because I know that's what God wants me to do. Guy had been a Christian a couple of months and he goes back and he throws himself in the mercy of the court and he got two years probation. It's amazing. Now, we had another guy that, uh, that many of you may have known and you know what, he ran from the law. And he would never stop, and he would never turn himself in. And we gave him counsel over and over and over again. Bro, you need to go back and do this. And you know what? He didn't go of his own free will. He fought at every step of the way. He finally got caught, and he's in prison. And it's amazing, a perfect analogy here, that we see the one that comes back with a broken heart and confesses and says, you know what? I'm guilty. I'm guilty. Forgive me. There's forgiveness. But those who run away and refuse to repent, what happens? There's consequences. There's consequences. God is a gracious and a merciful God. He differentiates between those who are caught in their sin and those who, through conviction, come repenting their sin. The law teaches us that fraud and injustice not only doesn't enrich men, but it impoverishes them. Many people think if I steal, I will become rich. No, you won't. You'll become in poverty. You really will. And you know what? It may not happen here, but it will happen in eternity. Verse 5. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed and lets loose his animal and it feeds on another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best of his own field and the best of his own vineyard. So if you trespass on another one's property, allowing your animal to graze, you must pay him back from the very best that you have. The key to true repentance and restoration is repaying from our best. It's holding nothing back. True repentance means turn around doesn't say, mean I say I'm sorry. It means to turn. It means to change. It means to become totally different. If I come up and I smack Manny in the nose and say I'm sorry, and I smack him in the nose and say I'm sorry, and I, I'm not sorry. That's not repentance. Amen? Repentance is I smack and then I take him to the hospital and I pay his medical bills and I, you know, I pay him for the week off of work that he has and I go over to his house and cook him dinner all week long. That's repentance. And that's what repentance is. Repentance is a turning. It's a transformation. So a key Christian principle is this. We should be more careful not to do wrong than not to suffer wrong. We've done the wrong thing. We need to give back of our best. We need to be more concerned about doing wrong than suffering wrong. What do I mean by that? When we suffer wrong, it's an affliction. When we do wrong, it's sin. It's way better to be afflicted than to be walking in sin. Amen? We should err on the side of our own harm, not the harm of others. Amen? Isn't that what Jesus did? Error on the side of our harm not the harm of others. Look for ways to minister to others. If I come out on the short end of it, it's okay. Because it's all temporal anyway. Amen? I'm giving up what I cannot keep to gain what I cannot lose. It doesn't matter. Have an eternal perspective, not a physical one. So be, it's really a key Christian principle. is to be more concerned about ministering to others than what happens to me. And we see that very clearly. He says, so give back of your best. If you you send something out in your field and you graze in your field, then you return to him from your best. Verse 6, if he breaks out and catches in thorns, if fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that it's stacked grain, standing in grain, or the field is consumed, he who kindled the fire shall surely make restitution. You know, we're responsible for our sins of malice, you know, premeditated, but we're also responsible for sins of carelessness. When we carelessly don't do the things that God has called us to do and then a fire breaks out. It's interesting to me that when I read this fire, what I thought about was James. The Bible says in James that our tongue is a fire. You know what? We can do more damage with our tongue than any part of our body. We can wreak havoc. We can spread gossip. We can bring the building to the ground by using this small member in our body, our tongue. And it says here that that fire would just spread. And the same is true, and it's interesting because he went after the thorns, but in the midst of going after the thorns, he burnt down the wheat. And quite often, we'll go out and we think we're using our tongue, right, to, to somehow you know, get after the people that aren't doing the right things, and before you know it, we're burning the wheat to the ground. We're causing people to stumble. We're wreaking havoc in the church. You know what, uh, in youth group, we used to have a saying, prayer or praise. We have it in my house too, prayer praise. If you can't say something nice, pray for them amen and if you can't do either one then just be quiet and too often you know and and you know i I, it's really sad when the youth group used to get back at me about it you know i'd say something pastor dave prayer praise oh you know conviction right but it's good that we need to have that heart and you know what that fire that was kindled guess who's responsible whoever started that fire that brought that whole field to the ground would have to make restitution for the entire field and the same is true. I believe that, you know, we're going to stand before God one day. And we use our tongue to level churches, to hurt people, to bring harm to people's reputations, you know, to make ourselves look good, then we're going to reap the consequences of that. A lot of good fruit has been destroyed by the tongues of men. And you know what? What do we do when we do it? We need to make restitution. And how do we do that? We need to go back to those people and ask them to forgive us. Statutes for starting this regarding dishonesty. We looked at statutes for starting fevery. Now we're going to see statutes regarding dishonesty. Look at verse 7. If a man delivers to his neighbor money or articles to keep and it is stolen out of the man's house, if a thief is found, he shall pay double. In those days, they didn't have banks. So when you leave and you wanted your, your goods taken care of, quite often you'd go to your neighbor, you'd hand them all your valuables and say, look, I'm going to be gone for a month or I'm going somewhere. I want you to take care of my stuff for me. And you would give it to them and they were now responsible for it. And it says, now, if it's with that man and a thief comes in and steals it, then the thief is going to have to pay back to the man who had loaned it, you know, had asked the man to take care of the stuff, double. Look at verse 8. If the thief is not found, then the master of the house shall be brought to the judges to see whether he has put his hand into his neighbor's goods. So if the thief is not found, the one entrusted to watch over his neighbor's riches is brought before the judge. And the judge would look and determine whether or not this man had stolen. The stuff from the man he had been asked to take care of it for. Now, this is interesting. What this reminded me of from the New Testament is the parable of the talents. God has given each one of us spiritual gifts. And the Bible talks about some he gave five talents, some he gave two, some he gave one. And then he returned. And when he came back, he asked the one with five talents, what have you done? He said, I turned the five talents into ten talents. Oh, enter in my good and faithful servant. You know, five, I turned two talents into four talents. Oh, God, bless, enter in. The one said, oh, I buried it in the ground because I was afraid I would lose it. He said, take the one talent from that one and give it to the one who has ten and banished him. You know why? Because God gives us gifts, not that we would bury them, but that we would use them. Amen? You know, God has given every one of you guys a gift. If you've been born again, if you've given your life to Jesus Christ, if He's your Lord and He's your Savior, He didn't save you to be a pew potato. Amen? He didn't save you just to see how fat and healthy you could get. He saved you to use you for His glory. And so... We see here that it says, you know, that this man took the goods, and if he stole them, that he was going to reap the restitution. He, he was holding these things for another man. Aren't we doing the same thing with everything that we possess? Doesn't everything we have belong to the Lord? Aren't we just that neighbor holding on to the riches of another man? They're all God's. And we're going to answer for what we do with God's stuff. Verse 9. For any kind of trespass, whether it concerns an ox, a donkey, a sheep, or clothing, for any kind of lost thing which another claims to be his, the cause of both parties shall come before the judge, and whomever the judge condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. So the judges in those days were not judges like we think. This is not a court of law. The judges were the spiritual leaders of the day. They were the ones that God had told Moses to raise up. So basically they'd say, take them to your pastor. And ask the pastor to determine which of them is guilty, and they would use the law of Moses to determine the guilt, they would question the men, and they would determine whether or not, who would have to pay, again, I think it's, we've gotten away from this, but the Bible tells us that as Christians, we should not sue one another, how many of you know that that's in the Bible, we're not supposed to sue each other, but you know what, we take people to the authority that they will recognize, and I've had the, I've sat down many times with people, and we've talked about things, And we try to take it to the Word of God. And I can be the first one to tell you that I don't have the answers. I just know where they are. They're right here. Amen? And so that's where we go. But you know what? It's sad because it blows our testimony when you have Christians suing Christians. It blows the testimony of the church. You're fighting over temporal stuff with your spiritual brother. Does that make any sense? You know, I'm going to go, I'm going to sue you, man. I'm going to take you to court. Uh, you know, and, you're, and you're battling over deck chairs in the Titanic, right? I mean, you're fighting over something that is perishing with your brother who you're going to spend eternity with in heaven. That doesn't make any sense. And so we see here that they came before the spiritual judges of the day and they would determine which one was guilty. Verse 10 and 11. If a man delivers to his neighbor a donkey, an ox, a sheep, or an animal to keep, and it dies, is hurt, or drawn away, no one seeing it, then an oath of the Lord shall... Be between them both, that he has not put his hand into his neighbor's goods, and the owner of it shall accept that, and he shall not make it good. So it says, if somebody gives you their word that they have not brought harm to that thing that you asked them to entrust, then you need to just take their word. You know, as Christians, it's sad that people don't, we don't trust each other's word. Our word should be plenty. And again, even to my own harm. You know, you, you loan somebody, and I'll be honest with you, and we're going to get to this in a minute because it talks about it. When I loan people money, I don't loan them money. I give them money. If somebody comes to me and asks me for a loan, not that I'm the wealthiest guy in the world, but I've had an opportunity to loan a lot of people money. And you know what I do? When I loan them money, I just count it in my mind, this is a gift. Take it. Why? Because it's God's anyway. Just take it. If they choose to pay me back someday, that's fine. If they don't, I'm not going to worry about it. Why? Because it's all God's money. And we need to learn to just take people's word. And what happens is we allow temporal things to tear down eternal stuff. We allow our relationships with other Christians to be divided. You know, I know Christians where one guy owes another guy money and they don't talk anymore and they avoid each other and they used to be friends because this guy feels guilty that he can't pay him back and this guy's all mad because he hasn't paid him back. And we miss sight of what it's really all about. And he's saying here, if somebody gives you your word, he's a brother in law and says, you know what, bro, I'm telling you I didn't do it. Okay, that's good enough for me. That's the end of it. Let it go. And even if it's to your own harm, I loaned him my car, he brought it back, and it's got a $3,500 dent in the back, and he says he didn't do it. Well, okay. All right, bro, God bless you. That's fine. No problem. You take care of it. Don't worry about it. To your own harm. You know what? So often, we want our rights. We want, you know, it's, it's all about me. No, you've got to take, you know, treat me right. I don't want what I deserve, and I sure think, you know, if you know what you deserve, you don't want it either. But again, it's better to suffer wrong affliction than to do wrong and to sin. And in cases where there's no evidence, all they went by was a man's word, and you take it. Now, we need to be people whose word is trustworthy. Look at verse 12. But if, in fact, it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to the owner of it. So if, if it's under my care, the neighbor's possession, and they're stolen from me because I haven't been watching them, then I must make restitution. So if I'm watching somebody's stuff and somebody comes and takes it from me and steals it because of my carelessness, then I need to make restitution. Verse 13. If it is torn to pieces by a beast, then he shall bring it in as evidence, and he shall not make good what is torn. No no restitution was necessary for an animal mauled by a beast. If the carcass was produced as evidence, they'd say, look, I didn't steal it, uh, a beast came into my field while I was watching your cattle and tore your cattle to pieces, and here's what's left of it, and they would say, okay, well, it just happened, don't worry about it. It's okay, let it go. And so again, these are laws specifically for Israel, but many of them have spiritual applications for us today. Look at verse 14 and 15. And if a man borrows anything from his neighbor and it becomes injured or dies, the owner of it, not being with it, he shall surely make it good. If the owner was with it, he shall not make it good. If it is hired, it came for its hire. Now, if you borrow something from your neighbor, you are to take care of it and be responsible for it. If the owner is there with you and it breaks then it's not your problem. If he's there and you, you, know, you borrowed his chainsaw and you're working on something together and it breaks, well, and again, to me, error on the side of holiness, error on the side of restitution, error on the side of you being wronged and you do the right thing. But here we see it says that if, if the man comes and you're supposed to be taking care of it and you lose it or it breaks, you need to make restitution. So if you borrow something from somebody, you need to restore it back to them. Again, these were laws for Israel because in those days they had three million people and up until this point, they had no clear laws. And God is showing His grace and His holiness, saying, this is the fair way to live life. This is how we are to treat each other. We're to do the right thing. The law is a picture of God's grace. So now we're going to move on. It's going to get kind of heavy here. But it's going to move on, and we're going to talk about something that, you know, it's really sad, but it's just out of control these days. Because we go from the the statutes concerning property, not stealing, don't break trust of people, better to suffer wrong in regard to the temporal than to blow our testimony concerning the eternal. Restitution brings an opportunity for restoration. If we pay our brother back, we have a much better chance of restoring our relationship with him. If we don't pay him back and we fight with him over the money, we've blown our relationship, it's never worth it. But now we're going to move on to statutes concerning adultery and fornication. This is the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. This is expanding upon that. And we're going to see adultery from both a physical perspective and a spiritual one. And again, the consequences for physical and spiritual adultery were extremely heavy. Look at, look at physical adultery in verses 16 and 17. If a man entices a virgin who is not betrothed, then he lies with her. He shall surely pay the bride price for her to be his wife. Let me define this really clearly. If a man found a young virgin, and, all, and the women back then, they were virgins until they were married, if, they, if he went and enticed her, as soon as he slept with her, they were married. Just like saying I do. You're married, and you go pay the price to her father, and this is your wife for the rest of your life, that's it. And I'll tell you what, you think things might change a little bit if that were a law today? You think people might change their activities and their habits just a little bit, that if you went, and you went and you joined with somebody physically, immediately that person was your wife, that's it, you're married, you're done. You know what, now every, all, all half of your property belongs to her, you have to give a dowry to her father, which is about a year's wages, by the way. So you had to go write a big check to her dad, right? And now, and now that's it, she's your wife, and you're done. No, no. And you know what else? If she was betrothed to somebody else, you know what the penalty was then? They took you outside of the city gate. They stood you in a tree, in a box that they would plant a tree in. They stood you in the box and they threw stones at you until you died. And then, you know, then they would plant a tree. And every time people walked by, they'd go, oh, yeah. I remember what happened there. And they'd say, oh, you don't want to do that. And it was a constant reminder that adultery resulted in bad things. Now, Jay Vernon McGee said something. It's funny, but it's, it's sad. But it is funny. He said, if they were still stoning adulterers today, you couldn't drive through town because there'd be piles of rocks everywhere. You know, you couldn't get around because there'd be piles of rocks everywhere. And that's the sad truth. And so there were consequences for adultery. There was consequences for fornication. He said, you lie with that woman. She's your wife. You know what? That ought to be our heart in the church today. Amen? You don't touch anybody until you're married. That's it. And you know what? When you're betrothed, in the betrothal period in the Old Testament, they had a one-year betrothal, and during that betrothal, there was zero physical contact. None. I'm going by that rule at my house, by the way. And so, no physical contact. My daughter's getting older. We ain't going to have none of that. Hey, you want to come to my house, sit at my dinner table on that side, and we'll talk. But that's about it. And the reality is, in those days, that's how it was. And you know what? When they got married, it was awesome because it was set apart to God. So when you go and you break that vow and you go commit adultery and you go and you become a fornicator and you say, you know, I don't care about the law, you're going to reap the consequences of it. And that's what happened here. Now look at verse 17. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money according to the bride price of virgins. So if he comes and he lays with her and her father says, I don't care what you did, you're a knucklehead and you ain't coming nowhere near my daughter ever again, you still have to write the check. Again, the betrothal price. Again, about a year's wages. You had to write the check out, hand it to her dad, and guess what? Get lost, pal, and you don't even get her as you've done. And you know what? Again, do you think that might curb some of the activity of the world? No doubt. You know, if you, if you sleep with someone who's betrothed, you get stoned to death. If you sleep with somebody who's not, she's now your wife, you just said I do, whether you heard it or not, you said it. You're married to her. You've got to make the commitment to her dad. You've got to write the check. Get out a check for a year's wages because you're paying it. You might even have to be enslaved to her dad to pay it off. That's what's going to happen. Boy, people's attitudes and hearts might change. You know, today, sexual immorality is rampant. You know, it's really sad that it's, that it's very rare When two people have waited till their wedding day. It's sad that that's rare. That should be the rule, not the exception. Amen. I've done a few weddings and it's pretty neat with kids from my youth group who, when I said, you may kiss the bride, it was the first time they had ever kissed somebody when they kissed the bride. That's pretty awesome. That's why it's in the wedding, by the way. You may now kiss the bride because you shouldn't have been kissing her up until then. Right. I mean, so you may now kiss the bride and that's awesome. But you know what? The sad part is that you watch TV and you, everything we watch now, you got 12-year-olds kissing on TV and every, it's all man, just a mess. And what happens is it desensitizes us to sin. And we start to think, well, that's the way it's supposed to be. And you got 19 different boyfriends and girlfriends in the 8th grade and you know it just gets worse and worse. And you have all these trial marriages and when another cuter one comes along, you break up with that one, get another one, break up with that one, get another one. And then you finally get married and you've already been divorced 75 times when you were in high school and junior high. So when, you know, when your wife starts messing up, you just get rid of her. You, know, you keep having these trial divorces and these trial marriages that don't work instead of waiting for the person God has for you. And you know, I know that sounds radical, but you know what? Let's be radical. Amen? And that's how I want my, I look at my kids and I'm praying for their spouses every single day, praying for them every day. God, wherever they are, God, be with them. Fill them with your Holy Spirit. I pray that each one of their spouses would just be on fire for God. And when I, and if the Lord tarries when I meet him, I'll be able to look at him and say, I've been praying for you since the day you were born. And you know what? We need to have that heart. Instead, what happens here? That they go out and they commit fornication and man, the consequences were heavy. And their consequences are heavy today. AIDS. That's a pretty heavy consequence. Unwanted pregnancy. Abortion. All the things that happen because people give into the flesh instead of being obedient to God. I want to encourage each one of us. Those of you who are teenagers that are here. You know what? There's no greater thing you can do than wait for the person God has for you. You'll never regret it. But if you don't, you'll always regret it. Amen? You wait for that person. God's got someone awesome for you. Wait for that person. Now let's talk about spiritual fornication or adultery, and that's serving other gods. This is the first and second commandment. You all, you should, what's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall serve no graven image. These, he's going to talk about Canaanite worship, and these next three verses are things that were evident in Canaanite worship, and it's spiritual fornication. Look at verse 18. You shall not permit a sorcerer to live. Now that's pretty strong. You shall not permit a sorcerer to live. So what was the penalty for being a sorcerer? Death. Now, I think it's interesting, and I think it's a great verse because we're coming up on Halloween pretty soon. And it's sad because last year at Halloween, it said on the front of the Sentinel, Santa Cruz's favorite and most celebrated holiday, Halloween. Man. Now, Santa Cruz means Holy Cross, but here's, here's what Halloween's all about. I'm going to educate you, so once you're educated, if you don't know this, once you're educated, that lightsman been shined on you, right? So now you're responsible, so here it is. Because I used to do this stuff when I didn't know. Halloween absolutely is the devil's holiday. It absolutely is. Jack-o'-lanterns, how were they created? They were a symbol to satanic or evil spirits that you were welcome at my house. She'd carve them and put them out in front of your house and put a little light in there to say, hey, Satan, come on over to my house. Evil spirits, you're welcome, come on over. I'll be you thinking about that if you started carving some jack-o'-lanterns this year. Okay, trick or treat. You showed up and you said, if you don't give me what I want, it was extortion, I'm going to call Satan down on your house. I'm going I'm to pray that the demons will come. These were witches and sorcerers who did this. Now we hand our kids a, a pillowcase and tell them to go and get Snickers bars and say trick or treat and carry jack-o'-lanterns around. And the reality is that as Christians we should have no part of that holiday. Again, this pastor day, well, no, it's not my opinion. It's a fact. We should have no part of that holiday. Because you know what? On that day, you know what's happening? Children are being sacrificed to Satan on that day. If you don't believe that's true, we have that trick-or-treat video somewhere, don't we? You were in that video, and there's a, a young man on there who was raised in a family to specifically be a sacrifice. And a little girl was sacrificed right in front of his eyes, and he said, and I'm telling you, it's reality. I used to work at the lumberyard over here, and I'd go up in the hill after Halloween and have all these dead animals that they had sacrificed. To Satan. You know what? We need to be praying, not trick-or-treating on Halloween. Amen? And so we see here, he says, what happens to a sorcerer? Dead. Now, that doesn't mean that we go down to the psychic shop, and, you know, with a oozy with a and start blowing people away. That's not what God wants us to do. Now, but the consequences, this is spiritual fornication. Why? Because what is sorcery? It's worship of Satan. Now, how does Satan get into our homes today? Let me tell you a, a couple things real quick. The devil's greatest inroad into our house, I believe, is through entertainment. I believe that's the number one way he gets into our house. How many of you guys have seen that, the video, They Sold Their Souls to Rock and Roll? Is that one of the most radical things you've ever seen? And if you watch that video, you're going to have a totally different opinion about rock music. Now, I love, I love electric guitars, man. I do. I mean, any of you rented ridden in my car with me? I, it bumps, okay? I like it, all right? I crank, you know. If my ears aren't bleeding, it's not loud enough, right? So I like it, but here's the reality. I like music that glorifies and honors the Lord. God created music to worship Him. And one of the number one ways He gets into our home is we start listening to music that glorifies and honors something other than Him. And it desensitizes us to sin. It talks about it in that video how it's just like what the communists do. They desensitize you over time to show it to you again and again and again before you get used to it. You start listening to music and you start singing lyrics and before you know it, you don't even know what you're singing about. And that's what the enemy uses. He'll also use uh, TV. You know, the window into hell in the corner of your living room, right? I mean, you turn that thing on, and you know, what happens? You know, I have a TV, but I mean, you turn that thing on, and what happens? And you know what? Stuff that you would never, ever go participate in, you invite it right into your house. Your kids are sitting there watching teenagers, you know, fornication. Watching, you know, the language that comes out and the, and the things that are being taught. And our kids will sit and watch TV for six hours and only listen to us for 20 minutes. Who's raising our kids? And the enemy will use that to get into our homes. He'll use movies. He'll use video games. Again, desensitizing them to sin. Pouring new age and demonic practices right into our houses. Let me make it real clear. Let me help you out. Horoscopes. Pit of hell. That's pretty clear, right? Pit of hell. Horoscopes. Where, where does that originate? It's sorcery. It's what it is. It's seeking to get divine instruction from other, someone other than God. Sorcery, Ouija boards, sorcery, dungeons and dragons, sorcery, all that kind of stuff that seeks, you know, somehow to reach something divine. You know, playing these games and stuff, all that stuff is not from God. God desires that we would be sold out to Him. And this sorcery is spiritual fornication. Now, it's interesting that the word for sorcery is pharmakia, That's where you get pharmaceuticals. So guess what else is sorcery? Drug use. When people are doing drugs, oh yeah, I saw all these lights. Well, I guess so. But here's the thing. Those lights are not God. It's, you know, people, oh, I took LSD, man, and I met the Lord. No, you didn't, man. You you were on a trip somewhere, but you didn't meet God because God will never meet us when we're out of our minds. Amen? It's in the right mind that He meets us. And so we see here, sorcery, spiritual fornication. These things are contrary to God, and God says death is the result. Look at verse 19. Whoever lies with an animal shall surely be put to death. Now this is debauchery beyond debauchery. This is out of control. But this was a part of Canaanite worship. Canaanite worship was into sorcery, and it led to lying with animals. Out of control. Next verse. He who sacrifices to any God except to the Lord only, only, he shall be utterly destroyed. Breaking the first two commandments, spiritual adultery, those who sacrifice to false gods would surely die. Now you might say, who sacrifices to false gods today? Nobody, you know, I don't drive around seeing people with idols out in their front yard. Well, usually they're just in their driveway, not their front yard. But the Bible tells us, and we see it today in in our society, that our gods are money, career, relationships you know sex drugs alcohol muhammad buddha joseph smith of the mormon church false gods all of them you know you go you know feng shui new age movement yoga all these things we're trying to somehow reach god without going through jesus christ jesus said i am the way the truth and the life and no man comes to the father but by me amen You can't get there through, you know, crawling up into a ball and, you know, getting the white serpent out of your spine that you do in yoga. That's not going to work. And you can't, you know, and you can't go to Buddha or Muhammad because those are dead guys anyway, and they were not born of virgins. And so there's only one way we can get to heaven. There's only one path. There's only one truth. And the rest of it is spiritual fornication. We are the bride of Christ. Amen. And as his bride, we are committed only to him and no one else. And so any other way that we try to seek to go to God apart from Jesus Christ is spiritual fornication. The result of it, death. Separation from God. Adultery and fornication, both physical and spiritual, result in extremely dire circumstances. And restoration can only come through restitution. And we're going to talk about that as we close in a minute. Verse 21 through 27. Statutes concerning how we treat others. Remember my, one of my favorite acronyms. J-O-Y. Jesus, others, yourself. Put Jesus first. Others next. Yourself last. And you will have a life filled with joy. It's when you put yourself first. You start putting the Lord down the list. You got Yoj and that's not good, right? You want joy. J-O-Y. Jesus, others, yourself. Verse 21. You shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. He's saying to the people of Israel, don't look down on others. The Jews were to be compassionate towards strangers in their land because they too had been strangers in a foreign land when they were in Egypt. You know what? As Christians, the biggest mistake we can ever make is to look down on unbelievers. Weren't we too once strangers to God? Amen? Before you came to know Christ, that's what you were. We're just beggars leading another beggar to the bread. Amen? We are just simply people that have been saved by grace. It should not be self-righteous. We should never look down upon them. Our hearts should be broken for them. And say, bro, man, we know what the answer is. Let me show you. Can I tell you about the love of God? One beggar leading another beggar to the bread. Don't look down on the strangers. Just as we should, again, not mistreat a sinful world, we too were once strangers. We are to love people the way that the Lord does. Not self-righteously, but with a broken heart for sinners in need of a Savior. Verse 22-24. You shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. If you afflict them in any way and they cry at all to me, I will surely hear their cry. And my wrath will become hot. And I will kill you with the sword. Your wives shall be widows and your children fatherless. Do you think the Lord cares about widows and orphans? What does he say? My wrath will become hot. I will take a sword and I'm going to cut you into pieces. Your family will become fatherless if you mistreat widows. The Bible says that pure and undefiled religion is to minister to the orphans and the widows. And let me just tell you this. I love every one of you here more than you'll ever know. But I have a special place in my heart for single moms. I just have a a special place in my heart for them. I have a special place in my heart for the young women in our church who maybe their dad's not around. I have a real special burden for them. And I feel as as the body of Christ that we should be looking out for them. We should be ministering to them. You know what? My heart is that in the future, hopefully not too long from now, as the church continues to grow, I would love to have a ministry where we just go around and we go to the single mom's house and we fix her car when it needs to be fixed. And we go to her house and we paint it when it needs to be painted. And you know what, if her 12-year-old son has a football game that some guys from our church show up and cheer him on, amen? Because that's the way the church ought to function. We ought to have a burden for them. And the Lord says, here, you know, if you come against the widows, if you come and you take advantage of them and say, well, there's no husband in the house, I can take advantage of her. I can, you know, I can dupe her out of some money. I can charge her more than I'm supposed to. I can do these kinds of things. The Lord says, man, the vengeance is going to be heavy. Why? Because those are his kids. And when people take advantage of his kids, they're going to have to reap consequences from him. You know what? We need to minister to the poor. Why? Because God loves them. Verse 25, If you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, you shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not charge him interest. Oh man, that makes no sense from the business one-on-one class I took in college. Aren't you supposed to charge everybody interest? Isn't that what the world says? That's how you do it. That's, that's good business sense. That's the way you do You know what? If you walk with God, you're not going to make much sense to the world. Let me just tell you that right now. A most, if not all of what you do, the world will say, what are you doing? That makes no sense. You might end up selling your house and buying a mobile home or something. You know? You're going to do things that the world is going to say, what is wrong with you? Why are you quitting your job? What are you doing? You know what? When you loan people money and you understand that all the money belongs to the Lord, why in the world would you be charging interest, loaning money to God's kids when it's His money to begin with? You don't do that. That's what the Bible says. But I hear people, even on the radio, oh, well, you know, you just sit down and you charge them interest, you make payment plans. No. If you can't loan it to them without, don't bother. Don't do it. Don't put out usury. That's not what God wants us to do. Give it away before you do anything else. You know what? God has promised to provide for our needs. And I truly believe this. If every Christian gave the way we were supposed to give, they wouldn't have to have a welfare system. Instead of going to the government when they were hurting, people would show up at church and we would just bless them. Amen? And can you imagine if everybody, if they knew when they were hurting, they could just come to the church and be ministered to, then we'd have a great opportunity to minister to people. But what happens is we hold on to our stuff. We're all guilty of it. We're still consumed with our stuff, mine, mine, mine. It's all his, his, his. No, mine, 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 his, his, his. Amen? It all belongs to the Lord. And he says, don't charge usury. Minister to the poor. Don't take advantage of your brother. It's all God's money. We're almost done. Verse 26. If you ever take your neighbor's garment as a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. In those days, a cloak or a garment was something that they not only wore during the day, but they used it as a blanket at night. And he said, return it to him before the night comes. But this is the only covering. It is his garment for his skin. What will he sleep in? And it will be And it will be that when he cries to me, I will hear, for I am gracious. This is the key to the whole chapter right here, these last three words of this verse. I am gracious. How is it that we sinful men can have restitution that brings forth restoration between sinful man and holy God? It's because of these three words. I am gracious. What is grace? It's God's riches at Christ's expense. G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. Not God's riches at my good works. Not God rich, God's riches at all the great things I've done and me giving to charity and God's great on a occurring. It's God's riches at His expense upon the cross that's the only way that we could have it. That's the only way that we could know His grace. He says, I am gracious, and aren't you glad? It's the key to our restoration. He is gracious towards us, and we ought to be gracious towards others. Jesus loves me so much that He'd rather die than live without me. He loves you so much, He'd rather die than live without you. You are His treasured possession. He can never get you off of His mind. He thinks about you every second of every moment of every day. He loves you so much that He died for you. That's an awesome God and he's gracious. Should we not trust him with our lives? When you see somebody next time that's getting on your nerves. You got a coworker that's bugging you. You see somebody that think is lazy, dude just go get a job. Remember, Jesus died for him. Amen. Jesus died for him. Jesus died for her. Jesus loves her. And when you take that perspective, you start to realize from an eternal point of view how precious these people are in God's sight and how precious they ought to be in our sight. Lastly, statutes concerning our reverence for God. Look at verses 28 through 31. You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. We are to have reverence for God and all those that he has placed in positions of authority. Honor your mother and father, honor your boss. Honor the police officer that pulls you over to give you a ticket. Honor the person in government. Doesn't mean we can't disagree with them, but we pray for them and we honor them. Honor those that God has placed in authority over you. Verse 29 and 30. You shall not delay to offer the first of your ripe produce and your juices, the firstborn of your sons, you shall give to me. Likewise, you shall do with your oxen and your sheep. It shall be with its mother seven days. On the eighth day, you shall give it to me. He's saying, don't hesitate to give to God. You know, too often we say, he's saying here, look, when you have a new calf or a new oxen, the first seven days, have it with its mother so it can drink of its mother's milk, but on the eighth day, you bring it and you give it to me. Don't hesitate to give to God. So often we hold back and we're waiting to give to the Lord. We need to give to Him now. Amen? You'll never regret giving it to the Lord. And again, at Calvary Chapel, we don't need your money. We're not looking for your money. We don't pass the plate. We don't do it. Why? Because we know God will provide. Amen? But you give out of your love for Him. You don't give to a ministry because the ministry is going to close if you don't give. If the ministry is going to close because you don't give, it needs to close. Amen? Because where God guides, God provides. But it says here that we should be giving of our first fruits and not giving God what's left over. Now, that talks about our, our money, but I think as much, if not more so, he's talking about our time. Quite often, we give God what's left. You come in, We come in exhausted and tore up to church. We're just whipped because we've given the world everything we have. And we're at church doing you know, doing one of these kind of things, right? I mean, we give God what's left. We read our Bible at the end of the day, and we're, you know, we're drooling on the pages because we're giving God what's left. Instead of giving God what's first. First fruits of our time, first fruits of our ministry. You know, if we're called to do ministry by God, we don't say, okay, well, I'm going to do my job, work 60 hours a week, and, you know, pay for the boat and the vacation house and all the other stuff I've got. And if I've got any time left over to come in maybe early and set up some chairs, I think I'll do that. That's not that's not first fruits. First fruits is Lord, I'm going to give you first, and I'll schedule everything else around you, not scheduling you around me. Amen. Too often we move, we take a job because it's going to pay more money. Then we try to find a place to do ministry. I think it ought to be the other way around. We go to the place where God's called us to be, and then we let the job move. Amen? Go to the place where God's called you to be first, and let everything else take care of itself, because God will provide. He's Jehovah Jireh. Last verse. And you shall be holy men to me. You shall not eat meat torn by the beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. We are holy men. That's what God has called us. We're holy not because of who we are, but because of who he is. As God's children, we're holy men and women, and we today shall watch what we feed on spiritually. So let me say this to you in conclusion. Man's sinfulness and disobedience has left him in desperate need of restitution and restoration. Religion means to relink. So while we saw the clear distinction between restitution, what was was required, in the case of the thief, he had to pay back double. In the case of the neighbor minding his neighbor's goods, he had to restore from the best of his. In the case of the adulterer or the fornicator lying with a, a virgin, what happened? He had, to pay, he had to marry her and pay the price of a bride. For sorcerers and idol worshippers and those who afflicted widows, it was God's wrath and resulted in death. So here we are today. Everyone in this room is a sinner. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. What is it that pays restitution for us that we might have restoration with God? It's not your good works. It's not you paying a debt. It's not you giving of your finances. It's not even you giving of your time. None of that can bring restoration. None of that pays the restitution for sin. Why? Because sinful man cannot pay for sin. Only holy God. What is sin? Sin is missing the mark. It's an archery term. Take an arrow and you throw it, you shoot it at a a target, and the only place of perfection on that target is the bullseye. And any distance where your arrow lands is called the sin distance. It's the separation from perfection. And so all of us are sinners. Some of us may be closer to the bullseye than others, but we're all a long ways away. You know, I mean, Michael Jordan can jump a lot higher than I can, but he's still not much closer to the moon than I am, right? If we both jump, and that's how it is with us when it comes to sin. So how do we pay the rest? How does the restitution get paid? It can only get paid one way. Holy God came and suffered and died and paid the price that you and I cannot pay that you and I might be restored back to our Holy Father. Amen? There's no other way that we can get to heaven. Jesus is the only way. Amen? Only through Him. And so if we're we're striving, we're trying to do it another way, it will never, ever, ever, ever work. Jesus paid the price of restitution that you and I might experience restoration. Thank you, Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you and we praise you, Lord, that the price needed to be paid, but we thank you that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We thank you that you paid the price on our behalf, that we might have eternal life. Lord, and we thank you that we've been restored to fellowship with you through your shed blood on the cross. Lord, I pray if there's anybody here tonight that does not know you, that, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would just draw them to see their need for you, that they would come and and just ask to be prayed with, Lord, and know that it's just simply saying, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior that brings that restoration, Lord, because you've paid the price. So, Father, I just pray that you go with each of us now. Help us, Lord, to live lives set apart to you. Help us, Father God, to love people the way that you love them. Help us, Father God, to do things to our own harm that you might be glorified. So, Lord, we just thank you, we praise you. You're such a great and an awesome God. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.